Thank you, Chad. Good morning, Bethel. That was actually pretty good. Surprise for first hour on your game today. My name is Fritz Hager. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel, and it is good to be here, and it is an honor to share God's Word with you today. Uh, We are uh, wrapping up, or close to wrapping up, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which we've called Summer on the Mount. Doesn't mean that summer is quite over yet. We're about at the halfway point uh, for those parents who are already ready for your kids to be back in school and out of the house, and for the kids who don't want to go back to school yet, your summer's about halfway done. Um, But the Sermon on the Mount is actually a, it's kind of a tough and sometimes pivotal, pivotal passage of Scripture where Jesus explains to his audience that whatever you thought the standard of righteousness was, it's much higher. And if you thought you could attain that standard of righteousness, it's hopeless, and you cannot. He gave some examples. It's, it's not just okay that you haven't murdered somebody. If you've been angry with somebody, it's as if you've murdered them. It's good that you haven't committed adultery, but if you've lusted, you're equally as guilty. An impossible standard and such a high bar performance that Jesus is the only one who can meet it meaning that salvation through performance is not possible. And last week, Todd preached a great sermon on the good father, the golden rule, and he closed with a Rudy illustration. That's one of my favorite movies. I loved that illustration. I promise you it's one I can't match. But it's good to be back at Bethel again. I've been on vacation for a couple of weeks. Our family took a road trip all the way up to West Point, New York. We spent five days in New York City, And we did what you do when you visit New York City. You go and you go to the museums, you walk almost everywhere, and you eat, and you eat, and you eat. And we actually, we stayed at a friend of my aunt's apartment, and we experienced something that my kids had never experienced, which is living without air conditioning. Uh, And the first day we were there, it was 98 degrees in New York City, and we had uh, one window unit in the master bedroom and one window unit uh, in the family room, and everybody was huddled up right next to the air conditioner in the family room. Uh, It was great fun. And even though New York City is significantly behind us in terms of reopening from COVID, um, we did get to do most of the things that we like to do there. But there was one thing we didn't get to do, and uh, that was to go by Chinatown, which we did go to eat, but we didn't go and buy a fake watch. That's like a ritual with our family. You go to Chinatown, you buy the fake watch in New York City, specifically a fake Rolex for my son Henry. It took us two trips to get that done for him. The first time we visited New York, I told Henry, I said, okay, here is the secret to negotiating with street vendors and pretty much everybody. The first is the power of walking away. That's when you get your best deals is when you start to walk away. And the second is begin the negotiations with the price you're willing to pay firmly set in your mind so that whatever they say to you doesn't influence you and you're paying more than you want. And so Henry decided he was willing to pay $40 for his fake Rolex. And that was it. No more than $40. So we, uh, we went all over Chinatown. We talked to several street vendors 
And he got close to $40, but couldn't quite get $40. And so we walked away all the way back to Texas. And it took another trip to New York City for Henry to get his fake Rolex because he raised his price to $50, and $50 was what it took to get the deal done. So, a watch that normally would cost $3,500 if it was real, Henry got it for $50. It was really nice looking. Uh, stainless steel with this deep blue face. It had these little dots and hashes for the numbers, the silver Rolex crown. It was beautiful, um, but totally fake and exactly like Henry wanted it. So here's the thing about a fake Rolex. It takes close examination to tell that it's fake. You have to look at it closely. And one of the ways you can tell is the movement of the second hand. And if it kind of ticks and stutters as it moves, rather than moving smoothly and almost continuously, then you know it's a fake. If you're holding a real Rolex and a fake Rolex, the real Rolex is heavier. It's more substantial than the other. But the trick is, at first glance, you can't tell them apart until you look closely. And the, the way you tell aren't obvious to the casual observer, unless, of course, you think it's unusual for a high school kid to be wearing a Rolex. Then that's probably a dead giveaway. Um, but other than that, it's hard to immediately tell that it's a fake. And that's the same challenge we have in our passage today, which is really about how to tell a fake. It's Jesus telling us how to spot a fake preacher and a fake Christian. So, the first of his two tests is how to spot a fake prophet, or in our context today, we would say a fake teacher or preacher, which is useful information if you're a guest here and you're looking around at churches and you want to know if we have fake preachers here, this will be a good sermon for you. Or if you happen to be mad or disappointed with your pastor, which of course never happens here, also a good passage for you. But for pretty much everyone listening to this sermon who's not standing on a stage saying, thus says the Lord, this fake is about someone else. And so it makes that part of this passage easy. The next part of the passage is how to spot a fake Christian, which is a little more personal and harder for us to read. But if you're like me, it's something you would like to know in time to do something about it. So let's turn or click to our passage today, which is Matthew 7, verses 15 through 23. That's Matthew 7, 15 to 23. And while you're doing that, I'll orient you on how we'll spend the rest of our time here together. First is, I'll read this passage, and then we're going to talk about how we at Bethel approach Scripture and preaching uh, to set this sermon in context and then we're going to look at the two tests, and I think at the end of the two tests, we're going to feel a little uncomfortable, and then I hope to set the whole passage in context in a way that lets out a little bit of the tension, but not too much. So let's read our passage, Matthew 7, beginning in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. 
Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from trees? From thorn bushes. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Okay, so before we dig into the text, let me say a few words about preaching here at Bethel. We believe the Bible is the very words of God written down by human authors carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that because of that, because it is from God that in the original manuscripts, it is without error. And because it is from God and because it is perfect, it is authoritative in our lives. Just as the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So, the authority for in preaching and the power of preaching here is rooted in the text. Fortunately for me, it's not rooted in my eloquence, in my energy level, in my phenomenal sense of humor, none of that. It is in the power for preaching is in the text. And so, one of the disciplines we have here is that we do what's called expository preaching, which simply means the point of the text is the point of the sermon. In a lot of ways, I, we don't get to choose the point of the sermon. We get to choose the passage which determines the point of the sermon. And so, sometimes that's awesome, and it's a fun verse, and it's, one, it's passages we love to talk about. The golden rule, uh, ask and you shall receive, passages like last week. And then sometimes we get tougher passages, passages that might make us uncomfortable or, or might make us uh, ask some tough questions about exactly what does this mean. Uh, to us here today. So, one final um, caution about how we approach this passage. All Scripture is true and useful for teaching, but the Bible is not written as a systematic theology where this whole idea or a whole doctrine gets plopped down right in one passage. So, it's kind of like a puzzle. And if you're over the age of 30, you've probably done a puzzle uh, I don't know if kids do puzzles anymore. I don't know if they could sit still and concentrate um, on a puzzle for that long. But anyway, when I was a kid, we used to do puzzles. And, you know, the deal with a puzzle, if you don't have the picture to start with, is sometimes you could get a couple of pieces, put them together, and think, oh, this puzzle is a picture of a ball of yarn. And as you continue to put the puzzle together, you realize, oh, no, this has really not a lot to do with a ball of yarn. It's really about this cute little kitten playing with a ball of yarn in a field of flowers for some reason. 
but the point is that you're looking at a small piece of the puzzle, and you're not looking at the whole picture. And that's what today's passage, that's the warning I want to give us, is we're going to look at two pieces of the puzzle. We're not going to look at the whole picture until the very end of it. So, as you hear things that make you anxious, that make you wonder um, if I'm a heretic, uh, we're staying true to the point of this text, and then we'll set it into context for everything else. So, back to the passage, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So, false prophets, who are these people? In the Old Testament, a prophet was clearly someone who spoke for God, often foretelling something that was about to happen or something that had been said privately to them by God and was making that public. But in the New Testament sense, prophets here are also viewed as foretellers. They're telling about things God has said. They're making those public, but those things have already been revealed. And so, uh, we might call those people today preachers or teachers. So, um, what does this verse tell us about these fake or false prophets or preachers? One, these wolves look like the rest of the sheep. They look like us, they dress like us, they talk like us, use all the right words and phrases and lingo. They wear skinny jeans if that's what you expect them to. Not here, uh, but elsewhere. Hawaiian shirts, maybe. They are exactly what the sheep expect. But continuing Jesus' theme of looking past the surface to the inside of the person, you see that these sheep are not really sheep, that they are like wolves. They're like those wolves Chuck just talked about that he loves to see devour other creatures. And that's what these wolves are doing. They are seeking to harm and destroy. Obviously, you have... Examples like this that we might think of, like David Koresh and other cult leaders who, in the real, in the now, led their followers to death and destruction. But I think there's something more insidious or more deceptive here. What's so harmful about a fake preacher? Look back at verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it, Enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So I think in this context, the fake preachers Jesus is referring to teach a gospel. They have a message that is wide and easy. It's inclusive. It's popular. It's easy. It makes few demands on them. In fact, it might even promise immediate material blessing much like the prosperity gospel preachers of today. But Jesus says that leads to destruction and death. Or you can be a preacher who preaches the narrow gate. And that's a hard message because it strikes a death blow to the pride of man that says, apart from God, there is nothing good in us. And it's an exclusive message that says salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. Not Jesus plus anything. Not all paths lead to heaven. Jesus alone. 
But the message test is not what Jesus points out here, although I think that's in view because of those two previous verses. But the test here is the result of the message. It's the fruit, as he says in verse 16. It's bad fruit because it springs from a bad core, a nature incapable of producing good fruit. Grapes don't come from thorn bushes. Figs don't come from thistles. Then Jesus, having just compared two gates, now compares two trees, a healthy one and a diseased or distressed one. And he makes another exclusive claim, first in the positive, then in the negative. Verse 17, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Not a lot of wiggle room. Every healthy tree, not most, not you take some good with the bad, only the healthy tree bears good fruit. Cannot, impossible to bear bad fruit. The diseased tree bears bad fruit, cannot bear good fruit. It's impossible. So, how do you tell if a preacher, even your preacher, is healthy or diseased? Whether they're true sheep or they're a wolf. I want to make two points. First is an observation about the fruit test. I have blackberries in my garden. Um, I didn't plant the garden. I bear no responsibility for the garden. I just get to enjoy the garden. It's a great deal. But here's the thing about those blackberries. You only can test that fruit for about two or three weeks out of the entire year. A lot of time you're looking at that blackberry vine and there's no leaves on it because it's the winter or it just looks like a vine. It takes time to test the fruit. The other is when we first planted those vines, they produced a couple of blackberries. It's taken time for the blackberry vine to grow to where it can consistently produce good fruit. And I think it's like that with preachers and especially fake preachers. It takes time and experience to judge their fruit. So what does that mean at Bethel in our context as, as you evaluate our preachers? Are they a healthy or a diseased tree? And is the answer, even for you new people, is to stick around and wait a few years and see for yourself? And you should do that. You should judge for yourself. But there's another way that Scripture talks about. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Acts 20, and he will show us another way that's important too. Here's what he had to say to the leaders of the church in Ephesus, the elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years they did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So that's another. You trust the elders to judge the health and the quality of the fruit, which is their job here. And here at Bethel, Right now, you have the opportunity to examine elders. It's that season, it's that time where 
uh, we put forward a list of men who we believe are qualified and gifted to serve as elders and deacons, and the congregation gets to examine them. And so you have a very important job, which is these are the guys who are going to watch for the wolves. They're going to watch to make sure the fruit is healthy. And so your job is to examine them. And so if we're in the season, we're in the time where if you have any concerns about any of the men who've been put forward by the elders to help lead the church, now is the time to speak up. So, that's the false prophets, the fake preachers, and the, and the fake, fake teachers. Now, for the tougher one, the fake Christians. Look at verse 21 through 23, and you'll see another two. Previously, two gates, two trees, and here are two claims. The first, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And there are a few interesting and maybe even unnerving things about these people, these fake Christians. The first is they address Jesus as Lord. In fact, it's Lord, Lord. It's double, which is a term of respect, and it, it shows that they recognize his great authority. So these people waiting to enter the kingdom of heaven, recognize the authority and the lordship of Jesus. And notice it says, not all who say, Lord, Lord, which means there are some who say that and still do not enter the kingdom of heaven. And elsewhere on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is referred to the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, and those two are kind of interchangeable terms through most of the Sermon on the Mount. But I actually think here he's talking about heaven and the final judgment. And Jesus is saying that those who say that still do not get to enter the kingdom of heaven. In part because of, I think this is judgment and heaven, in part because of verse 19, but then when we get to verse 23, you'll see why I think it's about final judgment. But before going there, I want to point out something that's a little bit unnerving as you read this, particularly because we just read that the test on a false preacher is the result or the fruit of their work. So, how can you judge a fake? It's by its works. And then what do these people cite as their qualifications to enter heaven? Small things like prophesying in Jesus' name, casting out demons in his name, doing mighty works in the name of Jesus. I don't want to embarrass anyone by asking for a show of hands of who here has cast out demons or done mighty works. I can tell you I have not. And these sound like some amazing things to be a part of, and yet these people are not entering the kingdom of heaven. I think they're surprised by that too. They don't say, I recognize now that you're Lord, give me another chance. These people went around when they were living at times appearing to be super Christians, if you will, doing miraculous things in the name of Jesus. And from a resume standpoint, if we were just looking at it, they have a pretty good Christian resume. Prophesying, kicking demon butt, miracles, Things are looking strong for them. 
But look at what Jesus says. It's not enough. It's not good enough. Verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I've never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, obviously, Jesus knew them. He's omniscient. But what he means here is that you aren't mine. Not now, not ever. And it's not just that they didn't quite measure up. He didn't say close. You almost, yeah, you did some good things, close. He calls them workers of lawlessness. They were enemies. The judgment is final. So what is it about these people who cry, Lord, Lord, have these amazing spiritual experiences but cannot enter the kingdom of heaven? What does the text say? These people who seem to expect to be let in, what is different about them? Look back at verse 21. Who enters? The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The one who does the will of the Father. I'm a Greek nerd. It's in a present participle. So you could even read this, which is worse, as the one who keeps on doing the will of the Father or the one who continuously does the will of the Father. The one who's obedient. Over the long haul. Not a flash in the pan. Now let that sink in for a second Maybe a few seconds. Obedience to God's will is important. That's the point here. Obedience to God's will revealed in Scripture is important. And if you're in a period of disobedience or recurrent sin, whether it is short or long, that is a very dangerous place to be. You know, back in the beginning of the sermon, I said pick, this scripture was like a puzzle. And if this was the only verse in the Bible you had, if this was the only piece of the puzzle, you might think that salvation is about your obedience. But that's how you get into heaven is by being obedient. So why does Jesus say something like this? I think the answer is it's the same pattern he has throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Whatever we thought the standard of righteousness was to enter heaven, it is much, much higher than that. Back in chapter 5, Jesus said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have to be more religious, you have to be more spiritual than the most spiritual people you know. And the verse right before that, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called last in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Do it all. Obey perfectly. So how does anyone measure up to that? And fortunately for us, there are more pieces still left in the puzzle box. And those pieces clearly show that salvation is by grace and through faith. Paul says it clearly, Ephesians 2.8, most of you know this verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's by grace, through faith, not a result of works, but created to do good works. So how do we go back and interpret this passage in light of the whole truth of the Bible, the whole puzzle piece, and do it in a way that doesn't immediately let us off the hook for our obedience? And I like the way D.A. Carson puts it. He said, It is true, of course, that no man enters the kingdom because of his obedience. But it is equally true that no man enters the kingdom who is not obedient. It is true that men are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, but it's equally true that God's grace in a man's life inevitably results in obedience. Any other view of grace cheapens grace and turns it into something unrecognizable. Cheap grace preaches forgiveness without repentance, church membership without rigorous church discipline, discipleship without obedience, blessing without persecution, joy without righteousness, and results without obedience. James, the brother of Jesus, says it in fewer words in James 2, 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. The grace that Jesus offers is free to us, but it is in no way cheap. It came at a tremendous cost. When the Son of God stepped out of heaven, became a man, Jesus, and he perfectly fulfilled the law, he met this impossible standard of obedience and righteousness that we couldn't even dream to meet. That obedience led him to the cross where our sins, my sin, the sin of the whole world was heaped on him until he died paying the price for our sin. And it's only by claiming his obedience that we can be saved. And there's not anything that we can add to that. Salvation is by faith in Jesus plus nothing. Zero. His obedience is credited to us. Then God gives us a new heart, makes us a new creation. The very Spirit of God comes to live in us and change us and empower us to desire to be obedient, to do good works, not to earn his favor or earn our salvation in any way, but in response to his great love for us. We started off today talking about how to spot a fake. Fake Rolex, fake preacher, a fake Christian. I mentioned a couple of ways that you can spot a fake Rolex, but I didn't mention another way. This is Henry's fake Rolex right here. How do you spot this as a fake Rolex? It doesn't work. It worked for about a month after we bought it. It doesn't accomplish its true purpose, which is not fooling everyone to think that you have a Rolex. The true purpose of a watch is to tell time. In the same way, as Christians, our true purpose is to do good works that glorify the Father. 
not to earn our way, but in response to the great love for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, for all of it, Father, for the parts that are tougher, parts that seem easier at times. Father, thank you for your grace towards us by giving us the Bible, by giving us your word, by showing us your ways, by giving us a picture and the truth of who your son Jesus is. So, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here today. Father, I pray that if there are some who don't know Jesus, who are caught in this impossible trap of trying to be good enough to earn their way, they they wrongly believe, Father, that there is some cosmic scale that puts all the good stuff they've done on one side and all the bad stuff on the other, and if that's what they're relying on. Father, I pray that this text today, this series, your spirit would open their eyes to the truth that we are impossibly wicked without you. And it's only because of your grace that we have a way to be at peace with you. And it's only through faith in your son, Jesus, that we can have eternal life. And Father, for my brothers and sisters here who know Jesus, Father, I pray that this text would be a warning to all of us, Father, that we'd be reminded the cost of sin, the danger of sin, the destructiveness of sin. Father, and ultimately the great price that your son paid so that we might be forgiven of it. Father, I pray for the leaders of this church who are to guard us against the wolves. I pray that you would give them wisdom, that you give them insight to see the things that they need to see to protect us and to ensure that Bethel is a healthy place for all of us to grow. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus, the power of your spirit.